Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Mary was nearing 60 years old when her life changed dramatically. She became the foster parent for her niece's four kids. I didn't know what to do with them. We went out every day. We went out to dinner every night. I couldn't cook. Auntie would have brought anything, even water. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. The challenges and successes of the foster care system in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. And adopting a child can be a journey. We look at the costs and rewards. In the back seat, he piped up you know, one of the few things he'd said all day and said, when are you going to adopt me? Plus, Maine writer Lily King's novel Euphoria was a huge hit. Her new book, Writers and Lovers, is out this week, and a lot of the story is set in a New England restaurant. I worried that it wouldn't be interesting, but I, I always worry that, no matter what I'm writing about. But you have to, when you're writing, push all of those doubts aside. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. A kid's experience in foster care can vary from state to state. In Rhode Island, when child protection workers remove kids from their homes, the state immediately starts looking for relatives or close family friends who might take them. About two-thirds of all Rhode Island foster kids live with these kinship foster parents. And for both the kids and the adults, there's often little or no time to prepare. That's what Mary experienced. We're not using her last name to protect her family's privacy. In 2017, Mary was almost 60 and planning to move to South Carolina with her then-husband, when she had to make a split-second decision to take her grandnieces and nephews. Mary's still caring for the kids more than two years later. Sophia Rudin with the Public's Radio joined Mary at her home while she was making breakfast for the kids. On this Tuesday morning, Mary's been up for about an hour. She's sipping a cup of coffee and finishing off her breakfast of scrambled eggs. Her four foster kids are asleep upstairs. Time to get up. It's 7 o'clock. Hey, hey. I'll be down in a second. All right. I'll see you. My cousin was over the other day, and she goes, wow, you kind of haven't figured out. I says, yes, I, su- I succumbed to it. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? This is it. This is how it's going to go. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. Mary tells me in the first year with the kids, getting through each morning was a struggle. There were days when she didn't make it out of the house in time to drop the youngest off at preschool. But the family is slowly settling into a routine. We eat in all the time. Before, it was always eat out. I mean, in the morning before they went to school, it was a stop at Dunkin' Donuts. Because I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out, I mean, I knew, like, people would say, oh, make a chart. Yeah, okay. You know, cook. Yeah, okay. You know, like, all right, but it was until I understood it. 
What did you do it, you know, in your in your past life? Oh my gosh. I didn't get up and cook anybody anything. My husband cooked for me. Yeah, it's I mean seriously, it's a total it was a completely different life. Sometimes I really do I really, really miss that life. There's my princess. Becoming a foster parent was a split-second decision for Mary. As you can imagine, the days that followed were a whirlwind. It took a while for the full impact of her decision to sink in. Because at first I didn't think I was going to have them that long. I was like, okay. I thought, oh, weekend. And then the woman that was working with me, she says, oh, oh no, you're looking at two to three years. And then reality started setting in for me. And I think for them, because after a while, they started saying, well, when are we going home? And I'm like, oh, (laughs) you're not. That's when she started looking for a permanent place for the family to live. She went to her church for help. The first house we went to. What was the first house we went to? The church house. The church let Mary and the kids stay in a house they owned while she figured out a long-term plan. I think the church house was probably, at that time, the most fun we had. Because I just got them. We, um, I didn't know what to do with them. We went out every day. We went out to dinner every night. And um, I couldn't cook, yes. I, I couldn't cook it over. Remember, I couldn't cook, yeah. Yeah. Can I tell them, yeah. Auntie would have brought anything, even water. Just tell the truth, yeah. I'm, I'm telling the truth. Yeah. But now I'm good at it. Now I got it down. After two years, I went from really not knowing anything to figuring out whose favorite meal is what. Cooking steak. He loves his steak. He likes it medium rare, just nice and juicy. She has learned to cook, but that was just one of many things she had to learn about being a parent. Because it's easy to be the aunt. It's easy to be the grandmother. It's easy to be, you know, the big sister. But when you're the one really every morning, every night, raising them, talking to them, pick up your clothes, do your homework, brush your teeth, comb your hair, get in the car, get out of the car, where's your shorts, where's your bathing suit? It's, it's overwhelming. The biggest thing Mary's still struggling to manage is the money. As she mentioned earlier, she and her husband decided to divorce a couple months after she took the kids in. She's now on her own financially. It's very expensive. These kids in school, it's outrageous. The money that you put out. Foster families often fight the perception that they're in it for the money. But the reality is, Mary's mostly retired. She relies on the money from DCYF to pay the family's bills. DCYF standard board rate for foster parents is about $25 per child per day. She tells me it's the non-essentials, like school fundraisers, that are tough to manage. And I get it, but I'm also like, okay, well, I have three children in school. Each has to raise $30. So where are they going to get the money? Me. Mary says that for the past two years, she charged everything to a credit card and mostly ignored the debt she was racking up. Now she's taking a financial planning course and trying to pay it down. And that credit card debt in this country is what is keeping everybody poor. And I am going to bring our finances to the whiteboard so they understand this is how it works. 
She's also setting up checking accounts for the kids so they can start learning to manage their own money and be independent. He got money for his birthday, so we put three quarters of it in the bank. And now they're starting to understand finances. And um, it's good. What bed? What? Today's what? Picture day? Yeah! Oh my god, what did you do to your hair? I don't know! Let me see what you look like. That's producer Sophia Rudin with the Publix Radio. We're going to continue with this story of Mary and her four foster kids as they deal with the trauma of being removed from the home while also working toward forgiveness. The little one. When they were all getting in the car, everybody was crying. She was waving, goodbye, 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 the littlest. And then, I don't know, a few months ago, she said to me, I shouldn't have picked you. I said, what do you mean? She says, well, I should have just stayed with Mommy. And I said, honey, you didn't pick to go live with me. I said, you had to go live with me. Mary and I are sitting in the shady backyard, and the kids are by the pool. Do you guys want chips, soda? It's been two years since Mary became a foster parent to these four kids. They're the biological children of two of her nieces. Mary watched her nieces struggle with drug addiction for years. Everything came to a head one night when Child Protective Services decided enough was enough. That's when Mary showed up at the house and volunteered to take them. Just a few hours later, she left with the kids. Now, the hard part is there are some people in the family they still can't see. The kids are all old enough to remember the day DCYF removed them from their parents. But it can still be difficult for them to understand. That really is the most difficult part, huh? That's hard for us. When mommy can't come over and we wanted to come over. So you could talk about that. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, sometimes when I'm sick, she can't come over. And sometimes when she's sick, she is, she's like... She really can't come over because she has, like, allergies and she has, like, a bad thing happening. But she did, she's getting better. There's been a few missed visits recently. One time, there was a missed visit with their mom, and she called. And, you know, she was like, oh, I'm really sorry. I parked my car in a parking lot. And they locked the parking lot, and I couldn't get my car out, and I've been trying all day. And he is, like, looking at me like, that's not true. Even an 11-year-old is like, that's not true. Because mom doesn't have a car. There you go. That night, her 6-year-old had a meltdown and started crying at the dinner table. Mary explains their mom's been in and out of rehab in the two years since her kids were removed, but she's relapsed each time. That makes it hard for the kids to trust that visits with their mom will happen as planned. And for the older kids who remember more about life with their biological parents, it can bring up resentments that haven't gone away. I had an Xbox, and I came home one day from school and I was totally gone. My dad said that he didn't know what happened with it, but he pawned it for money. started crying so hard. started blowing my eyes out. Lots of stuff. I threw a bureau out, it was broken. I threw a desk out, it was broken. A chair. I said, sorry, go out there, go smash him. He did. 
he smashed him up and he'd be out there wow 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 and I just I don't know instinctively knew that he needed to be able to do that I, re- I remember once like I think it was last winter I picked like I was breaking up a bureau and there was one thick wall left and I put it up against the fence over there and the wood and I took my mallet and I, I for some reason I just pictured my dad's face and I threw it extra hard. I don't know. I don't even know why, but I threw it extra hard. Went through the wooden board completely. Went through the fence, and I got. I didn't even realize that I couldn't be that strong to break through a thick fence and a thick board. Some of this anger goes back to the reasons DCYF decided to put the kids into foster care, including a family fight over who the kids should live with. At one point during that disagreement, Mary was taking care of the kids while their mom went to rehab, but their dad decided to take them back. The youngest was four years old at the time, and she talked about this recently with her dad. He said, do you forgive me for taking you? And I said, nope, I really don't. I'm not forgiving you ever. That thing really hurt my feelings, and I said, I don't forgive things that hurt it very bad, my feelings very bad. This might sound really obvious, but why did it hurt your feelings so bad? Because I wanted to stay with Mom, and he knew I did, but he just took me anyways. Because my daddy um, went in jail like a, like a lot of times, and he promised he would stop doing bad things when he gets out of jail. I know your sister said that she would never forgive him. You know, Do you feel the same way? Kind of, but now I can kind of forgive him because now all the stuff that he did for me, I kind of, now I kind of forgive him, but I don't forgive him that both of the Xboxes. Forgiveness, we talk about this all the time. He's a human being, I always say to the kids. I forgive forgive him. The whole family goes to therapy together. Two DCYF caseworkers check in regularly. And Mary's looking into getting mentors for some of her kids through the Big Brothers Big Sisters program. But at the end of the day, the kids have to come up with their own ways of working through the anger and frustration. And I always say to them, that's a relationship that's always going to be there. It doesn't go away. It's important to understand who they are, manage it, and grow from it. Because it stops here as far as I'm concerned. This is the end of the road for any of that because this child, he's not going to live that life. Again, that's Sophia Rudin of The Public's Radio sharing her series Living in Limbo about foster families in Rhode Island. We'll have a link to the series at our website, nextnewengland.org. We've asked Sophia to stick around to talk more. Sophia, the kids we just heard about are still in the foster care system, right? Yeah, they are. And is there any indication that they will be adopted by Mary or will go back to live with their parents? Uh, as far as I know, there's um, no plan. They're still living with Mary. Uh, I talked to Mary recently, and I didn't hear anything about um, a plan to adopt or a plan to reunite with their birth parents. Uh, in fact, Mary just texted me yesterday and said that she's taking in a fifth child who's actually the half-sibling of one of the kids in her care already. So uh, the kids are, are staying with her for the time being. Wow, five kids. Yeah. Amazing. Let's zoom out now. I really want to get an overall sense of where the foster care system in Rhode Island is succeeding and where it's struggling. Let's start with success. 
Yeah, so I think the DCYF, the Department of Children, Youth, and Families, would count any child in a safe home as a success. Uh, definitely every family that is diverted from the foster care system through prevention programs like substance abuse, they're trying to ramp that type of program up, and, and that's definitely something they're uh, hopeful will help in the future. Um, another thing that the child welfare system in Rhode Island is continuing to try and uh, improve on but has seen some success in is reducing the number of youth in congregate care or group homes and in the uh, Rhode Island Training School, which is the state's juvenile correctional institution. They've also had success recruiting more families to be foster parents. Is that right? No, uh, they're really struggling to recruit enough foster parents. That's one of the big challenges facing the department right now. And uh, they're actually asking for more money in the 21 fiscal year 2021 in order to hire more staff to help with recruitment because it's something they are really struggling to do. What other areas is the system struggling? There's some perennial challenges um, that are, you know, really uh, tough for the department. Understaffing and uh, high caseloads for the um, child welfare workers is a major challenge. Another challenge uh, is the funding levels. DCYF, the Department of Children, Youth and Families, has overspent its budget several years running. This year, the governor is asking for a, a $37 million increase in the budget to try and help address some of the challenges. Another big challenge that deserves a closer look in the state is uh, the quality of care in group homes. There was recently a report released by the Child Advocate that found uh, a number of group homes in Providence run by the uh, Massachusetts nonprofit Communities for People were not providing enough supervision, were not keeping adequate records, and generally were not providing high enough you know, quality of care for the youth in those programs. And the state recently put several of them on probation and removed youth from one of those group homes. One thing that really stuck out about that report is that for at least one of those group homes, the complaint was a lack of food. Yep. Yeah, and I um, have talked to young adults in group homes and teenagers in group homes, and that's something that they're definitely feeling some stress about is enough food and the quality of food and nutrition in those programs. Sophia, are there any big takeaways for you um, after working on this series, Living in Limbo? Absolutely. Um, I think... <laughs> It's a system that's easy to look away from. And once you see the many ways that we fail as a state and as a country to care for kids whose parents can't care for them, it, it's hard to look away. Um, it's, and that's a good thing. I think we should not forget these kids because um, at the end of the day, all kids deserve a parent who will love them and provide not just a safe but you know, a supportive home, um, a state, a government is not really a replacement for a loving, safe um, home or parents. Uh, and these foster parents are doing what they can to be that replacement, but they're doing it really without much support. Um, and I think it's a problem that we, we should not be looking away from. Sophia Rudin is a reporter and producer for the Public's Radio in Rhode Island. Thank you for coming on the show. 
Thanks so much, Morgan. After the break, a recent report points to persistent problems in the foster care system in Massachusetts. Plus, we talk about the most affordable way to adopt a child. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. In 2014, a boy under supervision of the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families went missing and was later found dead. When Governor Charlie Baker took office the following year, he made a commitment to fix the state's foster care system. Since then, the budget for DCF has grown. Staffing has also gone up. But according to a report released by the department in January, there are still issues. Here to explain is Boston Globe reporter Matt Stout, who joins us from his office. Hey, Matt. Thanks for talking. Thank you for having me. Let's start with kids bouncing from home to home. What, what did the report find? The report found that it is continues to be a problem within the system. Uh, essentially, uh, on average, um, children within the foster care system move at a rate of nearly eight times per thousand days, which is roughly three years. So put in that context, if someone's in the system for three years, they're going to eight different foster homes, which is double the national average and actually worse than it was uh, four years ago, uh, at least in 2015 compared to 2019. Um, so that, that remains a persistent problem for them. And something that they, they've tried to address, uh, but sort of underscores that even amid all the money that they're putting into the, into the system and putting new staff, there's still sort of stubborn problems like, like that one that, that, that they want to correct, but just haven't got their arms around yet. That's a harsh reality. Eight homes bouncing back and forth between three years, double the national median. Do we know why this is happening? That's one problem with this report. It includes a lot of illustrative data like this, but it's short on context uh, and in terms of answering the question why. We know there's other problems within the system that the state has really tried hard to recruit new foster families, but a lot there's a lot of turnover there. You have kids that are actually... Uh, you know, staying in the system longer. So if you stay in longer, that that sort of lends itself perhaps in in many cases to moving more. But in in terms of drawing a straight line of, you know, these three factors are really driving this, the report lacks that context and sort of that explanation, which is something advocates are really, you know, hoping for as we move forward. But in this context, the state isn't clearly defining a why. Um, We just know sort of a what. Got it. Um, So let's hit on a couple of those possible explanations you mentioned. Um, Last spring, a colleague of yours reported on some foster parents who were unhappy with how the system was run, and some even quit being foster parents. What were parents' complaints at that time? They ranged uh, really across the board. Some felt they weren't getting adequate information from the state about the children they were taking in, you know, small things about uh, medical information to just things about their personality. Um, Some foster families felt, you know, overburdened, which is not surprising given sometimes it could be a chaotic nature uh, on the social workers part of of trying to find a home last minute. Um, But also at the same time, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, lots of turnover where 
you, you have foster families that, you know, were taking kids, maybe dropping out of the system that may be in part because they're adopting or just um, can't do it anymore. There are nearly a thousand kids in the foster care system in Massachusetts, and the report found that on average, they're remaining in the system for nearly two years. And then on top of that, we've got children reentering the foster care system after going back to their parents um, at a rate that's above the national median. Do we know why the reentry rate into the system is so high? The department points to a lot of factors that we're aware of. Um, obviously, the state continues to grapple with you know, an opioid crisis, epidemic, whatever, you know, phrase you want to put on it. But that remains real. And it it remains um, something that they're seeing in a lot of different cases of, you know, why there's there's problems within the family. Not everything about the foster care system is going poorly, right? So what are some of the positives that we can walk away with? Because they have put more money both into the system, into hiring social workers. Um, A big problem uh, several years ago was just the social workers' own caseloads. Those have gone down to the point where uh, now it's about roughly 18, um, you know, children or or, or families to to one social worker, which is far lower than the last couple of years. Um, The state has made gains in the number of children that are adopted. It's about 50% more than it was four years ago. Nearly 1,000 were adopted in 2019. Um, And and at the same time, those are all good gains, but also kind of points to the to the problems or the challenges within the system, you're actually having, you know, 50% more kids adopted, but you see that there's, you know, still a lot more movement with the kids that remain in the system. Um, so there are positives and it does show progress in some areas, um, but that, that, that's sort of the, what's been the nature of DCF um, going back several years. You, you make a gain somewhere and um, you're still trying to make up ground somewhere else. And I guess the real test will be to see if these lower caseloads actually translate to better care in some of the areas we've talked about, right? Yes. And that, that's one thing advocates kind of point to. That it, as much data as a report like this will have, they're always looking for more that kind of show not just, you know, what's happening to children in the system, but what, what are they doing before kids get in the system and, and sort of what are their outcomes there. But um, you know, this report, as um, good as it is in terms of giving us a sense of where the system stands, talking with advocates and people who really track um, the system, that they're hoping this is just sort of a, a first step to build off of. This is not the, the model per se, but a good step toward what they hope is just, you know, a better understanding of what's happening within BCF. Matt Stout is a reporter for the Boston Globe. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. We're interested in hearing from listeners connected to the foster care system in any New England state. Maybe you've been through the system yourself or are a foster parent. Tell us your story by recording your comment on your smartphone and emailing it to us at next at ctpublic.org. That's CT as in Connecticut. So it's next at ctpublic.org. It can be incredibly expensive to adopt a kid, but adopting a child out of foster care is one of the most affordable options. David Dodge is a freelance writer, and he recently wrote an article for The New York Times called What I Spent to Adopt My Child. He joins us from a studio in Manhattan. David, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. 
There are a number of different ways to adopt through the foster care system, as I mentioned, an adoption agency, a lawyer, and you can also do international or domestic adoptions. Um, As you write in your article, the cost can vary a ton from next to nothing through foster care to as high as $45,000. So I'm wondering, why is it so expensive to adopt through an agency? So there are a number of factors that influence the cost. Um, There's a lot of professionals involved in the process. Um, If you are adopting a newborn, um, you are going to be responsible for legal representation both for yourself and for the birth family. Um, You will be responsible for uh, the cost associated with a home study. So uh, it's just the range of uh, professional fees um, kind of stack up into getting into this pretty um, unfathomable range of of costs (laughs) that, uh, yeah, it's a a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people when they first start looking into it. And are are these costs representative of what it actually costs to do the things that the agencies or the lawyers are doing to help with the adoption, or are they inflated? So I would say these are the, the you know, it, it's kind of horrible to conceive of it in this way since we are talking about human beings, but um, but these are the going costs associated with the professional fees when you're adopting through an agency or through through a lawyer or internationally. You profiled three families who chose different adoption options for this piece, And I want to start with the family who chose to adopt through the foster care system. Can you briefly tell us who they are? So this is a couple, Mark and Rob. They um, are a gay couple that adopted through foster care. Um, They were interested in forming a family. And at the time when they were looking at all their options, they they figured that foster care was the place that they wanted to focus, not just because of, um, you know, it is by far the the cheapest option, um, but uh, to complete the process. But it also comes with a ton of supports that just are not available in any other type of um, adoption process. So uh, they had the costs of the professional fees associated with adopting offset um, up to $2,000, which is the federal um, rate for a foster care system. And then um, once they completed their adoption, they received $1,000 a month from the state um, up until their son turned 18. How did they meet their son? What was What was that first introduction like? They described this uh, moment that felt very manufactured to them. They went to like a, a pet store and were looking at pets, and then they went to play catch in the park with their son, um, who at the time, you know, they didn't really get a, a huge response from. They said he was very shy and seemed very uninterested in them. But on the drive back home, they were alone in the car with him, and in the back seat, he piped up you know, one of the few things he'd said all day and said, when are you going to adopt me? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that melted their hearts, obviously, as it would anyone. And so the parents said something along the lines of, you know, we still need to make sure this is a good fit. And and their son said, it's a good fit. And so that's, yeah, that's when they said they knew that that was the, this was their son. That is such a special moment to have. It is, yeah. And you had mentioned that part of the reason that foster care adoptions are more affordable is because the federal government subsidizes the cost at around $2,000. But I'm wondering, so is the cost of adoption and the foster care system similar to what it would be for an adoption agency, like $20,000 to $45,000 worth of effort going out there that's being subsidized? Or how does that work? So one of the big differences, I think, between children that you would adopt through the foster care system and through an agency or a lawyer is that um, 
that you're typically going to be ad- adopting an older child that's not uh, an infant. So, you know, if you're if you're adopting a child from birth, there's the medical costs that that are going to be involved in that, and then the legal representation that you need to be paying for both the birth family and for yourself. If you're adopting through foster care and a child has already been legally freed for adoption, that frees up a lot of those fees there without having to worry about the medical costs. That's um, another reduction there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is pretty comparable to what you would see if if you were able to do the same thing with a lawyer and agency with an older child. You also profiled a public school teacher named Jackie Hunt, who had considered the foster care system, but decided with to go with an adoption agency. Why did she make that choice? So I find her story fascinating in, in contrasting it with um, the previous one, um, Mark and Rob's case, in that uh, Jackie also originally looked at foster care, wanted to form her family that way. And, you know, you, you hear this a lot from adoptive parents. Their main goal is to give a, a kid that needs a home a home. And then they encounter all this insane bureaucracy that kind of challenges <laughs> the, that kind of very um, altruistic urge. And so in her case, what she found when she was started to look into foster care is that she uh, lives in Manhattan. Uh, she lives in a studio apartment. Um, and there are a ton of rules and regulations state to state that are meant to protect the kids that um, enter foster families. And one of those protections in a good majority of the states is um, the need to provide your child with their own room. In Jackie's case, she is a school teacher. She's living already in one of the most expensive neighborhoods in the country. So she was basically told that she would need to move into a two-bedroom apartment um, in order to satisfy the needs of her home study. Um, So when she looked at that and then looked at the costs that are associated with adopting through um, an agency or a lawyer, she realized that it was almost a wash and that it could actually be potentially cheaper for her to go through um, an adoption agency. Um, And so that's what she did. And she ended up spending, what was it, about $20,000 of her own money in the end? Yes. So she ended up lucky, actually, in in that the Spence Chapin fee was $36,000. And she was matched with a child who met the definition of special needs. So she was given a discount of $15,000 for that. And then she also applied and was accepted for a scholarship program called um, called Help Us Adopt, which is an amazing organization. They work nationally. And their whole uh, goal is to try to help um, families that are struggling with the finances around adoption get through that last kind of hump of the process. So they, they typically work with families that are already you know, approved for a home study and pretty far down the, the process. She had $20,000 in savings, and that's almost exactly what it ended up costing her for her to complete the process. All right, we'll leave it there. David Dodge is a freelance writer. He recently wrote an article for The New York Times called What I Spent to Adopt My Child. David, thank you so much for talking. Thank you for having me. That was freelance writer David Dodge. He wrote about adoption costs for the New York Times parenting website, which offers tips and support for new and expecting parents. We'll have a link to his article at our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, how author Lily King wove parts of her own life into her new novel, Writers and Lovers. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. 
Lily King is the author of the New York Times bestselling novel Euphoria. And she's got a new book called Writers and Lovers about loss, love, and creative ambition. In the book, 31-year-old Casey Peabody is really struggling. Her mother just died. She recently broke up with someone she loves. And Casey's got a mountain of student loan debt. She's waitressing at a restaurant in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just to get by, while also trying to finish her first novel. Author Lily King lives in Maine and joins us from the studios at Maine Public Radio to talk about the novel, which came out this week. Lily, welcome to Next. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So before we get to chatting, I'd like to start with a reading, and I'm wondering if you could um, read the first paragraph of the book. Sure. I have a pact with myself not to think about money in the morning. I'm like a teenager trying not to think about sex, but I'm also trying not to think about sex or Luke or death, which means not thinking about my mother who died on vacation last winter. There's so many things I can't think about in order to write in the morning. There's so much to unpack here, but I want to start with Luke. Um, Luke is a poet who Casey falls pretty hard for at a writing residency in Rhode Island, and then they break up. Why did you decide to kind of start the book at this plot line? Well, I needed her to have a number of things already kind of in crisis. <laughs> you know, I really wanted to start the, the book kind of in the middle of someone sort of having an existential crisis. Nothing in her life is working. And so I really needed a big, disastrous love affair along with all of the debt and her mother dying and feeling like she was never, ever going to finish the novel she was working on and having to live in a in a kind of disgusting place. <laughs> so speaking of a, a big, disastrous love affair, when I was researching for this interview, I came across a personal essay that you wrote for Modern Love, the New York Times column. And you you write about your experience of falling in love with a poet at a writing residency, which is pretty much the same story here. Um, how much of your personal history did you invest in the characters in the book? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely drew from that experience. And I drew from a number of sort of uh, emotions that I felt at that time for many years. I mean, I, I was a I was a struggling writer for a long, long time with not a lot of hope that things were going to turn out right. And I had a lot of the same emotions that Casey did in terms of the the fear and the panic and the anxiety and the doubt and the you know questioning of every single choice. But I, I definitely tweak a lot of things. That that is one thing that sort of is you know more preserved. But Casey herself is so unlike me. I've actually just been rereading the book as in preparation for my book tour. And I'm really shocked at at, at her um, opinions and the things she says. And, uh, you know, you kind of sometimes you write these things in a little bit of a fever dream and you're not really sure what's in there. That's so interesting for you to go back and read the book that you wrote and feel shock at the character. <laughs> I know. It's a strange <laughs> feeling. <laughs> I think what happens is that, that you know, you write it and you write it and you make many revisions and then it gets kind of smaller and smaller. You know, you're, you're just going line by line. You're going piece by piece. You're, you're figuring out, you know, contraction, no contraction, comma here. And you kind of lose sight of the big picture. And now I'm, 
I feel like I need to prepare for the big picture again. And it's sort of a destabilizing experience. <laughs> Did you like the book when you reread it and kind of re- re-experienced it? Well, you know, I'm only on page 85. So um, talk to me in a few days. <laughs> okay. I, I, I have mixed feelings about it. <laughs> I really wish that I could edit it so badly. I mean, I, I, I am editing it as I go along, but there's no one's going to let me change it now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going out into the world as it is. Exactly. Yeah. Um, another huge part of the story, which is hinted at in that first paragraph that you read, is Casey's grief after the unexpected death of her mother. And you really capture this feeling of loss. I felt through memories. Um, for example, when Casey is taking her mom's ashes to the beach, you write, I don't allow myself to believe that my mother's body, her hair, her smile, the two chords that made the sounds of her voice, her heart, her good bum, her moisturized legs, her toes that tinkled when she walked, has been burned down to this rubble in my hand. And especially those phrases like good bum, moisturized legs, so specific. And I'm wondering, what did you tap into to bring out such vivid memories? Well, I think I'll character is in the details and uh so i just i tried to i really wanted to make her a real flesh and blood person without too much backstory you know i really i I didn't i didn't want to kind of lay her out as a full character because she's not a full character i mean i mean i hope that the little details kind of make her feel like a full character but i didn't want it to be her story or Casey's story of her relationship with her mother. It's really the story of the loss of her mother, um, which is complicated. And and so in those moments, I, I just I tried to go for the visceral, you know, the body. Yeah. My understanding is that right before writing this book, you also lost your mother. Um, are there parts of her in this book or did you connect with that feeling as you were writing this book? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely again connected with the with the emotions of it. She's a she's a very different person than my mother was. Very different. But I think I wrote this book because my mother died. I was working on something else. Then I my mother died very suddenly in a sort of similar way, and I couldn't write any fiction for a long time. And when I I finally was ready to write fiction again, this book just came out of me, pretty much the way it is now. Um, And I I think it's because I felt so vulnerable and so kind of roughed up by life. And I I think it harkened back to that time in my life when I also felt roughed up and um, deeply vulnerable. There's There's a chapter when Casey, she's a waitress and she's She's waiting on these two doctors who come in for lunch and she she doesn't know how her mother died. And so in the middle of the, the meal, she just asks them, you know, she gives them the scenario of, of what happened with her mother, what she's been told, and then says, you know, so what did she die of? You know, <laughs> they're just they're kind of drinking their coffees and, you know, uh, she puts them in such a difficult position and – I did that once to somebody at a party um, a few months after my mother died. I did that to a doctor and I just remember seeing the look on his face and and I was so happy to be able to get something like that down on paper because it felt so true to the experience. Yeah, you can really you can really feel that in the book. Um, 
And and a lot of it takes place in the restaurant in Cambridge where she's waitressing. And we get this just totally vibrant picture of what it's like to work there and everyday activities. I feel like as a writer, that takes some courage to and confidence to say, yeah, I can pull off, you know, talking about her day-to-day job. Did you feel that way when you were putting it down to paper? I was worried. <laughs> you were? I, I was worried that I wasn't going to be able to really remember what it was like to wait tables. It's It's been many years. I did it for many years. And yes, I, I worried that it that it wouldn't be interesting. But I, I always worry that no matter what I'm writing about. That's my my a big concern is that the reader is going to be bored. But you have to, when you're writing, push all of those doubts aside. You, you can't write if you feel that way. And you have to remember the times before where you thought it would be boring and then somebody said it wasn't boring. And <laughs> so I try so hard when I'm writing just to get it down on the page and not judge it in any way. Another driving force in the book is Casey's ambition to be a writer. Where she's at in the beginning is, you know, this dark place and she's in massive debt and kind of the driving force is, will she pull herself out of this? Um, And you've got this quote that you said, this really is the book I wanted to read when I was in my 20s and 30s and struggling with my own ambition. And I'm wondering, how would this book have helped you at that point? Well, I don't really want to give too much away, <laughs> yeah, particularly about the ending. But I do – I think it would just may have made me feel less alone. I'm not sure that I I knew a lot of people at the time who felt the way I did. Of course, when you're going through something like that, you think that your situation is the very most desperate and everybody else's life looks so much better. I don't know if I would have loved the book. It's unclear, but um, I certainly would have liked to have had it. Was there any part of you that felt like you shouldn't or couldn't be ambitious? It just – it was not part of the narrative of a woman. It wasn't part of the dialogue I, in my family. I would have just cringed at the word ambition, you hmm. know. I didn't, I didn't have any confidence. And ambition, I mean, that's for people who – just really, really, really believe in themselves. And I didn't have that belief at all. But like Casey, you know, I just needed to write because if I didn't write, I felt worse. What was the moment for you when you felt like, um, I've got this, this is sustainable? (laughs) Or are you waiting for it still? I don't know. Never, (laughs) never, never. never. Um, I mean, sustainable. You just, you know, you're just always kind of like scraping up your last kind of resources to to get your last novel done. It's really funny when you get to this point. I mean, here I am sitting in a radio station with this hardcover, you know, and I just feel like I'm coming to you like just a shell of a person. You know, it it does. It really takes a, a lot out of you and you never, ever think you could do it again. I mean, I know I have to and I will and I'm excited about that, but it's sort of um, depleting and daunting to think of doing it, trying to do it again. Yeah. I don't want to give away the ending, but so I'm not sure if it's possible for you to answer this question, but we'll see. Um, do you think 
Casey, what do you think she learned about her own artistic ambition through the course of the book? Well, I mean, certainly perseverance and certainly the ignoring of the doubt and the her determination. You know, at one point she calls it a stubbornness that she acknowledges that she, you know, wrote all these chapters of this book that she's working in in different cities and different towns and and she remembers all of the the terrible kind of lack of faith that she had, but that that she had this little knot of stubbornness, you know, and and that got her through. Lily King's new book is called Writers and Lovers. It came out this week. She's also the author of the New York Times bestselling novel, Euphoria. Lily, thank you so much for coming on the show. Mm, Thank you so much for having me. That's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Paul Ruest. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio. Thank you.